You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. Iran launches missile strikes in Iraq and Syria, citing security threats. We'll ask where the unrest in the Middle East could spread to next and whether this is all connected to the Israel-Gaza war. Also coming up, the Kremlin hosts North Korea, with reports that Pyongyang is supplying Russia with arms. We'll examine who holds the balance of power. Plus, the papers with Yasmin Abdelmajid, who's in the studio. Good morning, Yasmin. What have you spotted? So we'll be looking at reports that China's population has dropped for the second year, a new study which interrogates European voting trends and ask our friends chatbots. Can we really be friends with chatbots? Thank you very much indeed, Yasmin. Plus a check-in from the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos and we enjoy the music news too. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First to look at what else is happening in today's news. The US military says it's carried out more airstrikes in Yemen against Houthi rebel missile sites. Qatar and France have brokered a deal with Israel and Hamas to deliver urgent medication to 45 Israeli hostages held by the group in Gaza. And Russia's President Vladimir Putin has said Ukraine's statehood could suffer an irreparable blow if the pattern of the war continues and that Russia will never be forced to abandon the gains it has made. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, on Monday, Iran launched a missile attack on what it described as Israeli spy headquarters in Iraq's Kurdish region. It claimed it was defending its security and countering terrorism. The US was quick to condemn the strikes and Iraq immediately recalled its ambassador from Tehran. And last night, Pakistan claimed Iran had violated its airspace. All this is serious enough, but in the context of fears that the Israel-Hamas conflict could spill over across the Middle East, just how significant are these events? Well, I'm joined now by Renard Mansell, Research Fellow in the Middle East and North Africa Programme and Project Director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. A very good morning to you, Renard. Good morning. Um, so just briefly, this is obviously a, a multifaceted story. It's changing rapidly and it is incredibly complicated. So could you just, if you can, briefly recap for us what happened on Monday? Well, I think um, what, what we're seeing on Monday yesterday is Iran uh, showing its force, Iran showing that it can retaliate, um, although Iran doesn't want to get into a tit-for-tat uh, escalation or direct confrontation with either Israel or the U.S., um, it prefers to fight in different ways. It still needs to show that it does have force and that it could uh, retaliate. And so it's chosen a few soft targets. And what I mean by that are areas where it knows it could attack with its missiles and not face real repercussions, areas that it's attacked in the past. Erbil, it attacked in 2022, saying necessarily similarly citing Israeli bases. 
and hopes that this could at least for its own domestic audience show that it is responding to 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 the escalation but not risking anything that would get out of hand from its perspective so these were it says israeli um spy headquarters in the Kurdish region near Erbil of Iraq. You say this has happened before. I mean, just explain to us the context of this, of why Iran is attacking these, these locations. As I say, Iran has often found Erbil and, and similar locations as places where it knows it can get away with attacking. Um, it, it, it sort of creates this narrative that there are Israeli bases there, which both the Kurdish officials as well as the Iraqi government have said are baseless. But it uses that as the pretext to attack Erbil, knowing that the Kurds and in, in, who lead Erbil, who, who govern Erbil, but also the Iraqi government are, are weak and won't be able to respond in any sort of way. And this allows Iran to show that it's fighting Israel. It allows Iran to show that it's it's powerful in the region, but it does it on its own terms, which which don't risk any serious backlash from its perspective. And so that's why it's choosing these specific areas to, to, to target, and it's done so in the past. The big question now is you know in 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 the past there was less of this regional escalation fear and 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 it, and 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 today the region is quite tense and this is why people are sort of hesitant or a bit worried about what the repercussions or what a misfire could actually lead to indeed what should we be reading into this because if you as you say this is not a new story this is an evolving chapter and a continuing problem that happens between Iran and uh, the north of uh, Iraq, the, 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 what the so-called is, is Israeli spy centers in the north of Iraq. But given the context and the fact that the focus is so keenly on trying to avoid um, a spillover of the Israel-Hamas conflict, what do we take from what happened on Monday? I mean, I think we, it, it, as you say, it's an evolving uh, situation. I, I think most people would say it was a one-off. It allowed Iran to show its force, but it also showed that Iran isn't interested in, in, in any kind of fight, prolonged fight in Iraq. In fact, in Iraq, including in the Kurdish region, Iran has become the most influential political and, and sort of diplomatic actor, foreign actor. Um, and it has Iran, Iraq in a sweet spot for, from its perspective. It has Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen. These countries are countries where Iran holds significant influence and would not want to risk destabilizing the status quo. Um, now, Iran has been, you know, from its perspective, called into having to retaliate both for uh, the bombings that happened a few a few weeks ago inside Iran that killed almost 100 at a, a memorial, but also for attacks on Iran's allies in Lebanon, Yemen, the Houthis and Lebanon, Hezbollah and others. So Iran is having to respond itself to show this. But as I say, Iran's game is not to go directly into a confrontation with a military like Israel or the U.S., which it knows it cannot win. Um, it prefers a longer term, slower, gradual uh, battle. And this is why it's, you know, well, this is how it's become so influential in the region, one of the most powerful actors um, in, in, in the Middle East today. It's a slower battle for what? For influence, for way, growing influence. I mean, you go back to all the way back to the Iraq war in 2003, um, where Iran managed, even though it was the US and, and allies that really invaded Iraq, Iran managed to turn become the most powerful actor there. 
Iran's become the most powerful actor in Syria after 2011, especially the Syrian civil war in Lebanon as well, and now in Yemen. So Iran has sort of a longer term vision of how it wants to control the region and, and how it wants to influence the region. Um, but it doesn't do so through direct military confrontation with militaries it cannot defeat. It does so with, by, by a mix of political economic and at times military or paramilitary and militia networks that allow it to maintain its influence in a way that you know aren't militaries like the US or others have not been able to in the region. Tell me a little bit more about how successful you believe this strategy to be because when you look at it from from the outside you, you see Iran sending conflicting signals to the rest of the world about what it hopes and what it intends, because it privately says it wishes to avoid a larger conflict when it comes to the fear of the spill of the spillover of the Israel-Hamas war. The last thing that Iran wants is to engage in open conflict and to be dragged into something in the region. Yet, as you say, these specific, rather lower-key targeting of, of locations in Iraq and in Syria and in Pakistan last night, we'll come to that in a moment, but also the fact that we have the Houthi rebels targeting um, the the ships in the Red Sea, not proxies, but allied to Iran. And indeed, the weapons that are being fired are reportedly all, all Iranian. So how is Iran hoping to play this game? I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult balancing act for Iran, certainly. Uh, but I'll give you an example that, that I think shows what Iran is looking for. Four years ago, the U.S. Uh, President Trump at the time launched a uh, missile attack that killed Qasem Soleimani, who was Iran's most senior general and the architect of Iran's regional policy. At the time, you know, this was the, the most significant assassination sort of in, in, in the Middle East for, for, for a very long time. And everyone sort of waited to see how will Iran respond. But of course, there was no tit for tat. There wasn't an equivalent uh, that Iran could do to to respond to that immediately. And so many people said, "Okay, this is a win for 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 the for for the U.S. one one to zero. However, four years on, and you look at where both countries are, the U.S. is waning in its influence in in Iraq and and, and the region, whereas Iran maintains and and has become increasingly more influential in in its region because it's strategy isn't just strikes, invasions as such, sanctioning and, and, and these policies that we see. Its strategy is developing these these institute these organizations and allies, whether it's the Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq and Syria, even the regime in, in, in the Assad regime in Syria. It's developing these organizations and it's right to call them allies, not proxies, because these are all they're Yemeni, Syrian, Lebanese, Iraqi organizations but that are supported by Iran and at times Iran has them do its bidding but that's always a negotiation and that's always a, a far more complicated uh, processes of local and global uh, considerations. Where does the United States lie in this? And there's, I read somewhere yesterday that this is now this this escalation, this attack in the last couple of days is a significant challenge, but an opportunity for the United States, an opportunity for the US to undermine Iranian regional in, interests in, in, the, in the region and also to strengthen ties in Iraq, which is a sore point between Iraq and Iran, isn't it? That's right. And, you know, the U.S. since, you know, for, for many decades now has, has has been sort of in this competition versus Iran for influence in the Middle East. I mean, since the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, um, the U.S. before October 7th 
um, was sort of retreating from the Middle East. For example, it had signed a, an agreement with the Iraqi government that it would remove its troops uh, under what became known as the Joint Security Cooperation Dialogue, and that happened in August of last year. Um, however, when October 7th happened, uh, you know, when, when Hamas attacked uh, Israelis and, and, and sort of Israel responded, and then you had this regional escalation and this tense situation that we're currently living in, the U.S. said there's no way we could be seen as leaving uh, our troops right now. And also the U.S. realized that the Middle East was actually not gone as a problem and that they need to continue to focus on it. Um, and so the U.S. is now trying to stay in when the Iraqi government is saying, no, but we signed this agreement and and, and we're supposed to normalize our relationships and to remove these troops. So the U.S. is is having to, uh, you know, backtrack, change policies, really exposing a kind of incoherence in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And I think Fundamentally, if you juxtapose that with, with Iran's more strategic vision, and of course Iran makes mistakes and isn't uh, all-knowing and all-powerful, but that incoherence in America's policy when it comes to countries like Iraq, Syria, and, and, and the region has really allowed, has made it easy for Iran to maintain its influence. Finally, a very brief question um, about the attack on Pakistan. Um, Iran said it targeted two bases linked to a militant group. Um, this makes Pakistan on the third country after the Iraq and Syrian attacks to be attacked by Iran in the last week. That's right. And again, Iran is showing that it, it it can attack. I think a lot of people were 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 sort of expecting and wanting Iran from Iranians, I mean, uh, to 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 do something. I mean, keep in mind that a few weeks ago there was a big explosion inside Iran in Kerman at the memorial of Qasem Soleimani I mentioned who who was uh, killed by the Americans 4 years ago and at that memorial, there was a, a terrorist attack. There was an explosion. Iran cited that there were Sunni uh, armed groups uh, that, that were behind it. And so this is, again, a response to that, going after this Sunni militant group, Jaysh al-Adil, um, in, in, in Pakistan. And But again, hoping that this is, you know, a one-off. This shows Iran, from Iran's perspective, it shows its force. Um, but it doesn't have to uh, be too worried about repercussions. Um, and we'll have to see. I mean, just like the government of Iraq, Pakistan's foreign ministry have, have said that, the, you know, this has killed two innocent children and it will have consequences. But uh, Iran is hoping that this could just be one off and, 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 and things could resume as, as the status quo in which it prefers. Renard Mansour, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Seven fifteen here in London. A look now at the newspapers. I'm delighted to say joining me in the studio is uh, the Sudanese Australian broadcaster and author Yasmin Abdel Majid. A very good morning to you, Yasmin. Morning. To how's, you. It, how's the world? In, how's, how's Yasmin's world today? 
I mean, it's nice and early. It's you know the skies are clear, so it's pretty good. Okay, here we good. go then. Let's 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 do. <laughs> let's launch, take it away. Let's do launch control. Amazing. Um, China's population dropping for the second year. Um, Reuters is reporting it. It's the front page on the FT. Yeah, it's everywhere. And it's quite interesting. So China's population fell for the second consecutive year. It says the total number of people in China has dropped by 2 million or 0.15%. Um, and this is well above last year's, but oh, 2022's population decline, which had been the first since 1961 during the Great Famine of Mao Zedong. But what's interesting about this is that, it, you know, the challenge for China is that it's not just about once fertility begins to decline, it becomes a very difficult challenge to reverse it. And it'll start to impact. Well, the questions now, uh, how will this impact labor shortages? How will it impact a number of other sort of economic issues that China's facing? And also, it's reflective of a challenge that the region is facing. Korea's facing this issue. Japan is facing this issue. Um, you've got India being the most populous. Last year, it was the first year India was the most populous country in the world. And so people are now thinking, OK, will we will we be moving things, you know, factories, supply chains out of China and perhaps into other countries like India and so on? So the other thing that I thought was interesting about this report was the incentives that the state is putting in to try to get people to have more babies aren't really working. And there was a a quote from a Beijing resident who sort of said, you know, we're reluctant to have a second child and we're not going to have a second child because of, you know, financial incentives or whatever. Like those incentives are auxiliary. The 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 actual root cause is a lot more difficult. There's an interesting idea that the Financial Times has reported it from a sort of an almost a purely financial uh, point of view that, that the fact is that the the, the the economy is uh, it, it's slowing even faster as well. It's growing at one of its lowest rates in, in, in decades. So you have this idea that it's not only causing problems much, much, much further down mm-hmm. the line, but it's causing immediate problems for China. And if you get immediate problems in China, you get immediate problems everywhere else. Exactly. I mean, it's the second biggest economy in the world. And so how, how this will play out and, and also what this kind of means for the leadership in China, I think, is remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. The next um, p- paper or the next article that I wanted to bring up was something reported in The Guardian, which talks about how crises have split European voters into five tribes. And a new survey has said that Voters are no longer divided into left or right, pro or anti-EU, but actually five distinct tribes which are much more around particular issues. So the climate emergency, the 2015 migration crisis, the global economic turmoil, the war in Ukraine and COVID. And I think this is interesting because, you know, we this year, uh, the Euro- European Union nations, I think there are about 15 countries um, that are going to the polls, including the European Parliament themselves. And it's a shift in how we think about, you know, how these voters are, are going to play out. So the issues of the last decade or so are really playing out, not among traditional lines, along traditional lines, but along issues. And this is something I think we'll also see more globally is people voting more along issues than along traditional kind of left or right. One sometimes gets the impression in situations like that that obviously people believe in the most pressing need but it's also the need that affects them most. What is what is the issue that is the most relevant to me? But when you have that situation one wonders whether it's because there is a, a great feeling when you have a global economic crisis that there is only so there are only so many resources to go around and so 
you know, we need to spend all our money on stopping climate change. Right. We need to spend all our money on 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 health. Um, and it's and it suddenly becomes a rather it, it it changes the mindset, doesn't it? Because the ideologies go, it just becomes right. a clamour for what what I can you know what what resources I can get for my cause. Totally, it's a sort of scarcity mindset. There was somebody said that it was a, a you've got two extinction kind of camps, like one camp that's interested in the extinction of the world, and so they're most focused on climate change, and another that's focus on the extinction of culture and so on. And so they're more focused on immigration and so on. And so people really are in a mindset of there are, as you say, only a few resources available. Um, How are we going to make sure that we're going to be looked after? And we do see um, political parties absolutely exploiting this, especially when it comes to migration, which is something Mm -hmm. that the British government at least is is doing all it can at the moment just to listen to the hard right within the the governing Conservative Party. And you see the same thing with Emmanuel Macron pushing through tough migration bills. You see the same thing happening in Italy. And and you just wonder whether actually the the rest of the day's business, which is still pretty darned important, Mm -hmm. gets pushed to one side as... The, the the long-term strategies of government are focused entirely on electability. I mean, if you look here in the UK, a wild story, um, which is, you know, the Rishi Sunak's government trying to get this Rwanda deal through, so trying to... to deport people, essentially, who are trying to come to the UK, back to Rwanda. And what's fascinating about it is they're so focused on making it happen, even though they would only send a few dozen people um, to Rwanda, that they are suggesting 150 judges be brought in to work overtime, to work weekends, to kind of get this through, where there are many, many other things that um, that those judges could be doing. And I think you're exactly right, Emma. This is a real challenge when you're so, so focused on niche or so focused on political um, positioning around issues that, that you think will be able to get you votes, particularly in election years, then the rest of the business of government falls by the wayside. And this is also playing into the private sector. There's an article that you want to draw attention to in the in the Financial Times about PricewaterhouseCoopers, the, the accountancy firm. It has yeah. diversity targets in the US. Lots of organisations have diversity. Um, and it's opening up scholarships which ordinarily are not open to white students because right-wing activists are are pushing their buttons and yanking their chains. That's right. So listeners might remember that uh, last year, the affirmative action, um, the Supreme Court sort of ruled against affirmative action, racial affirmative action in universities. And now private companies are have been given advice that this might also play out in the private sector, that affirmative action or or policies that support uh, racially diverse students might be deemed as unconstitutional. So PwC has started to change. You know, it no longer has goals around racial diversity. It has aspirations. You know, it's no longer offering scholarships just to people from ethnically uh, marginalised backgrounds. They have to kind of be open to everyone. And you know, I can understand an organisation like PwC wanting to, you know, it's a it's a risk averse organisation. But what this is showing is the the uh, policies that um, or the the fights that the right wing have sort of taken to the Supreme Court, the impact that it's kind of having in all different sectors, and and you're unpicking fights or you're unpicking challenges that were won decades ago, Roe v. Wade, affirmative action, etc. And, and and we're going to see the implication for decades to come. Uh, finally, you mentioned this when you first came into the studio at the beginning of the programme. Um, if you're feeling lonely, can a chatbot help you? I mean, my heart absolutely <laughs> collapsed when I heard that because I thought <laughs> even the most dreadful of human beings must, must, must beat a chatbot. But no, chatbots are better. 
Well, I mean, this this is the question. And we know that loneliness is, a, there is a sort of epidemic of loneliness um, in global North societies. And now I think OpenAI has launched this ChatGPT store, which allows people to buy niche versions of the chatbot built by developers, which means that you can kind of design a chatbot for your particular needs. And there are sort of stories all over TikTok, for example, of people bringing AI boyfriends and, and partners and so on. It's getting really weird out there. I mean, because ChatBT chat GPT girlfriends and boyfriends were never intended to be part of this. I mean, you're not allowed to do anything naughty with your bot, um, but you can talk about hiking and books and mm. and sort of, a, okay, a connection yeah. of souls online. I'm not quite sure where we're going. I mean, what, what, I think is, what I think is interesting, and this is something that I personally find fascinating, is rather like we, we look to technology to provide solutions for things that we know, we know that what we need is human connection. We know that actually speaking to a chatbot isn't necessarily going to give you the, the, the connection, the being seen, all of the community that you're looking for. But rather than investing in things in society that will help with the in-person stuff, we're more interested in finding technological solutions. And, and what that says, I think, about where society goes in a place where, you know, we have a problem with people having children, you know, the population is declining. Unfortunately, technology can do a lot of things, but you can't procreate with them yet. It can't even get you into your bank account, in my (laughs) opinion. Yasmin Abdel-Majid, thank you so much for joining me on Monaco Radio. Still to come on today's (laughs) programme. Guess what that is, ladies and gentlemen? It's a penguin. We'll find out why the UK is responsible for a third of the world's penguin population a little later on. Stay with us. in Moscow, 7.25 here in London. Now, in early January, Kyiv claimed that for the first time, Russia had been using North Korean arms in its invasion of Ukraine. Analysts suggested that the remnants of a missile which landed in Kharkiv bore all the features of one manufactured by Pyongyang. It's in that context that the North Korean foreign minister is in Moscow today. He's expected to hold a meeting not only with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, but also with the president, Vladimir Putin. I'm joined now by Mark Galliotti, Russia analyst and the author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Welcome back to Monocle Radio. Uh, So what's happening during these meetings today? Do we know? Well, I mean, the the official statement is, of course, that it's about getting closer relations with what, after all, Moscow has called our closest neighbour, which is saying something about its uh, collapse of relations with most of its other neighbours. And there's talk about, for example, Russian tourism to North Korea, because, you know, who would not want that? It's clear that in practice, this is about some very hard-nosed wheeling and dealing Russians want more North Korean military weapons and the North Koreans want grain, they want military technology and they want whatever else they can frankly get. Um, And, you know, with North Korea supplying weapons, I mean, you're talking about whatever they can get that they'll be after. I mean, when you see it from the outside, you just see it as an, 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 an alliance of two despotic regimes and mindsets. But is there a bigger issue at stake here in terms of Russia trying to find friends at a time when people are sort of abandoning it? 
Very much so. I mean, the point is, we, we, we've had news, for example, today that even banks in Turkey, which for a long time had been something of a bridge between Russia and the outside financial world, are now no longer willing to deal with Russian banks precisely because they're being worried about being caught by sanctions. So there is that sense of a much a narrowing circle of countries which both are willing to do deals with Russia and have something that Russia wants. So in this case, what we're actually getting is in some ways, it's a perverse effect to the sanctions regime. It drives sanctioned countries, pariah states like Russia, like Iran, like North Korea together simply because they have nothing to lose and quite a bit to gain. And indeed, what what alliances that then create? I mean, what what benefits do these this sort of the, the how about the, does the sanction club gain? I think it's very much there's there's three things really. One is obviously just the, the, the practicalities, you know, actually able to get equipment or weapons or whatever else that they need. Second, there is the fact that there is a sort of a psychological advantage. I mean, we, we may not think much about North Korea, but clearly the way that the Russians are talking this up, they're just trying to make that point of, no, we're not isolated. If anything, we actually have more connections than before. It's not true, but it's something that they want to tell their own population. And we likewise, we see that in Iran and we see that in North Korea. And the third element is precisely that they're trying to find in their own way, particularly because of their mutual connections also with China, is in some ways a route to building an alternative world order, one that is not, as they're concerned, run by the West for the West's advantage. Tell us a little bit more about the, the, the way that this actually makes Vladimir Putin appear personally. The fact that he is at the meeting with the North Korean foreign minister. I mean, he has had meetings in the last few months um, with Pyongyang, but the, the there is a, the outsiders might feel that this looks a little bit like like Putin himself looks desperate. I mean, one wonders whether this same meeting could have taken place five years ago. You're absolutely right. Look, there is an element in which it does make Putin look diminished, especially because you know we, we've had the case that. Uh, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has actually traveled to Moscow on one of his very, very rare foreign trips back in September of last year. And there's now talk that uh, Putin may even go to Pyongyang. Again, Putin does not really travel very much these days. And what's really for me the, the sort of kicker is I've been trying to find references to this in the Russian press. And of course, the news wires and so forth are covering it. But in terms of the programs and in terms of the newspapers that ordinary Russians read, this is not getting any traction at all. I think that Moscow is aware of the degree to which this is not something that all Russians are going to feel. Thank God, at last, we have North Korea on our side. Very briefly, um, what does this mean for Ukraine? Because I mentioned that, you know, North Korean missiles are reportedly being used in Russia's attacks on Ukraine. Yeah, what it continues to do is actually consolidate the fact that for the next year, unfortunately, Russia is going to have the advantage in artillery. I mean, already a million rounds have been provided by by the North Koreans, plus obviously everything that the Russians produce. Until Western factories and so forth come online with ad additional production, what it, this does mean that Ukraine is likely to have a rather rocky 2024. Mark Galliotti, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here is 7.31 here in London. A quick look now at the latest headlines. The US military says it's carried out more airstrikes in Yemen against Houthi rebel missile sites. It said the missiles were struck because they were being prepared to target ships in the region. The US strike came a day after Houthi forces hit a US-owned ship in the Red Sea.
Qatar and France have brokered a deal with Israel and Hamas to deliver urgent medication to 45 Israeli hostages held by the group in Gaza. In return, Israel has agreed to supply humanitarian and medical aid for the most vulnerable civilians in the Gaza Strip. The two countries said the aid would leave Qatar for Egypt on Wednesday before being taken across the Rafah border crossing. And Russia's President Vladimir Putin has said Ukraine's statehood could suffer an irreparable blow if the pattern of the war continues and that Russia will never be forced to abandon the gains it has made. President Putin was speaking a day after Switzerland agreed to host a global summit at the request of the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Putin has dismissed them as a so-called peace formula. And those are the headlines on Monaco Radio. in Addis Ababa, 7.32 here in London. Now, at the start of this year, Ethiopia signed a memorandum of understanding with the breakaway region of Somaliland. At its heart was a deal. Somaliland would get a stake in the flagship carrier Ethiopian Airlines. In return, Ethiopia would gain access to the Gulf Aden. Well, the agreement has not gone down well, and Samuel Getachew is a freelance journalist based in Ethiopia. He joins me from Addis Ababa now. Good morning to you, Samuel. Good morning to you. So just explain what's happened. Well, the Prime Minister signed a deal with the Somali, Somaliland uh, president uh, indicating that uh, Ethiopia's intention to use their seaport in exchange for ownership, as you mentioned, Ethiopian Airlines, as well as Ethiopia Telecom. As you know, Ethiopia is a landlocked nation and it's in need of some kind of seaport, according to the Prime Minister. Um, just explain what has happened as a result, because this, react- this, this agreement was, was received badly by, by lots and lots of people and lots of players. Well, it's become a wage issue. For instance, the Somali government has said they're willing to go uh, uh, against Ethiopia, uh, including going for a war in, a, in an area where it's known for a conflict, a conflict-prone uh, region. So there's a worry, and uh, the Djibouti government has said IGAD needs to get involved to try to solve this issue. Uh, it seems to be that uh, it's only Somaliland that's uh, championing this uh, this cause so far. But in Ethiopia, it's it's well accepted by a majority of people. Um, I mean, Somaliland, uh, reportedly, there have been protests and the defence minister has resigned. Is, is this because of access to the Gulf of Aden? Or what are the other reasons? Well, the reason is, um, again, Somaliland to many people is seen as uh, part of Somalia. It's uh, They're seen as uh, the sixth uh, province of uh, the Somali uh, go- uh, state or government or nation. So, again, um, it has many interests. The U.S. has come out against it. Uh, there are other nations, including China, that said it's uh, Somaliland is part of uh, uh, Somalia. So, again, it's a wage issue that's uh, being echoed in, in all all parts of Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian uh, government is supposed to be visiting Somaliland uh, today. Um, and what is expected to happen at the meeting well, today? Um, well, they're going to shake hands and make it official. Uh, they've been negotiating the details on how Ethiopia would be able to use the seaport and how Somaliland would be able to own a part of um, Ethiopian Airlines and Ethiopia Telecom. But the local uh, embassy in, Som- in Addis Ababa has a big sign saying uh, Embassy of Somaliland, uh, which was previously just a representative of uh, the Somaliland uh, government. The the degree to which Somalia has actually um, objected to this is is really significant, hasn't it? I mean, it has declared this deal void um, and its president has even called on Somalis to prepare for the defence of our homeland. Um, Do you think it will come to that? 
Um, we don't think so, but this region has surprised all of us with endless conflicts, um, and nobody would be surprised if another conflict was going to happen. Um, it's, again, it's a wedge issue. Ethiopian government is willing to go far. The Somali government is willing to go far. And in a region where compromise is rare, um, there might be yet there might yet be another conflict, which is really worrisome to many of us. Indeed. I mean, one there are concerns that this will be moving towards a formal recognition of Somaliland. Um, what is the likelihood of that happening? And indeed, how long a path and how painful would it be? Well, the Ethiopian government had indicated on January 1st that they're willing to recognize Somaliland as a nation, but they've gone back and said they're going to study the option, what they have, as an option, and they might look at as, as uh, you know, recognizing Somaliland as a nation as an option. So they're trying to compromise. But again, the Somaliland government has said, unless Ethiopia is willing to co- uh, recognize them as a nation, they're not going to allow Ethiopia to use the seaport. And if Ethiopia does not get access to the seaport, what mean? What are the consequences for it economically? Well, um, Ethiopia's population is, uh, again, estimated to be at least 120 million. The last time they counted was in 2007. It's estimated to grow, uh, according to the government, up to 150 by 2030. The government has been saying, the Ethiopian prime minister has been saying that Ethiopia has the right to use the seaports for its own survival. Um, but again, that's Ethiopia is really uh, coming out of... Uh, uh, endless conflicts. The economy has gone down. Investments are going elsewhere. Uh, so it's a desperate uh, situation for the country. Samuel Getachew in Addis Ababa, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Let's head to Davos now for an update from the Monocle team at the World Economic Forum. Carlotta Rabello is Monocle's senior foreign correspondent. Good morning, Carlotta. Good morning, Emma. How's it going so far? Are you warm enough? We are staying warm. Our studio at uh, Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion is keeping us warm uh, and the coffee is also helping. But with minus 13, uh, which was the record low temperature that happened yesterday, it's been a challenging edition of the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Now, it is so cold this time around that uh, the organisers decided to include snow grippers in the welcome packs for delegates. So that just gives you a hint of uh, uh, the levels of uh, snow and cold happening here in Davos. And are the great and the good coping with it adequately? I believe so. I mean, um, uh, so far we have not seen any stumbles uh, uh, down or up the snowy hills. Um, But of course, this is uh, an event that closes the entire Alpine town. Um, And uh, if you are one of those registered to attend, you can stroll through the promenade on its entirety. But as you know, uh, the World Economic Forum attracts a lot more than just the registered attendees. Uh, The promenade in the town has all the houses. These are both national houses like national pavilions but also houses from uh, private the private sector you have Deloitte PwC um, other Meta uh, other big tech companies Google is also here there's Bloomberg House the Wall Street Journal and for all of these um, you do not need accreditation so it attracts a lot of interest uh, from uh, private and public sector and the media of course uh, even for those who are not registered and for them uh, it is a bit more of a trek to make your way through Davos. So that's when the snow grippers come in handy. Right. So we're on to day three now. There's been um, obviously a huge amount of talk um, about the amount that the disruption in the Red Sea is affecting the global economy. What's being planned for today? 
So today really does a focus on two things. One is on finance and really what the future of finance might look like. Uh, this idea of our banks ready uh, for the future. This is happening this morning. It includes the CEOs of UBS, Societe Generale, and also senior leaders at GP Morgan Chase and the IMF. Uh, so that is happening uh, today. And then you'll be hearing from uh, panelists from the president of the Dutch Central Bank, uh, the Washington State Investment Board, uh, among others. So it is really uh, looking at the future of finance and banking. But on top of that, there is a big um, uh, discussion also happening, uh, happening on the north-south uh, divide. We need to remember that the theme of this year's World Economic Forum is rebuilding trust. And this is uh, a panel um, that includes the leaders of Rwanda, Colombia and the Netherlands, along with the World Trade Organization. Uh, that is um, a, a a buzz around this session, which is happening at the Congress Hall, the main um, um, arena, the main venue here at Davos. Um, and uh, the organizers are really planning for uh, high attendance to what should be uh, a great start to the day. So who have you been hearing from? So we've been hearing from an array of people. Yesterday, I uh, had a chance to catch up with Mayor Eric Johnson, who Monocle regulars might remember him. He is the mayor of Dallas in the United States. Uh, curiously enough, the only uh, American mayor uh, here at the World Economic Forum in Davos. He's taking part on WEF's um, Urban Transformation Center's discussions, which are peppered throughout the, the, the week. And there's a big mayor's roundtable happening tomorrow. And indeed, he is the one... Um, um, representing US mayors and he's taking part on a session on decongesting cities so we talked about the future of mobility and really how um, uh, decongestion and improving mobility can help our quality of life in our urban environments and um, it is a discussion that affects everyone from you know these civic leaders but also some of the companies present here who are working towards improving mobility with the climate goals uh, in mind and this idea of uh, here hitting uh, neutrality and um, carbon lowering carboning emissions when it comes to how people move around in their cities another person i spoke to yesterday was arancha gonzalez now she is the former uh, spanish foreign minister and she was talking a lot about what we can look forward to this year 2024 is a massive election year. Uh, more than half of the world population is voting at some point uh, from India to Indonesia, the United States and of course EU elections. So there is a lot of room for change. The world could be looking much different by the end of 2024 than what it looks now. But she highlighted something that is quite important is that regardless of the outcome of all of these elections, the world has a task to ensure they all happen in a free and fair manner and that you know there is a vote on com of confidence on voters and I thought she put it quite beautifully saying it that way and just tell us a little bit about you know you talked about this a rebuilding trust theme not to mention the fact that it's incredibly snowy but how does the feeling in the atmosphere change or, or, or feel different this year to previous um, events well, one thing that was palpable almost from day one is there is a lot more interest in this edition of the World Economic Forum than in previous years. Now, this is seen both across the media coverage outside of the usual suspects who are here on the ground, uh, but also the amount of people you see in, in the town. Uh, as explained at the top, you have a mix of those who are registered, but also members of the public who can just attend. And I think there are record numbers uh, on the latter. Um, now, everyone thought that the World Economic Forum 
forums, annual meeting that would uh, bring in the biggest number would be the one that happened last year. It was the first uh, full-on annual meeting that happened since COVID, even though there was an edition of WEF that happened in 2022. um, It was in the summer and scaled down. So last year's was really the first one that was back. But compared to that, this year really seems to be the year um, that everyone decided to pay attention to Davos again. Now, one curious thing is the amount of um, effort, both in terms of the houses on the public side, but also in within the official program within the Congress Center that is being dedicated to AI. There really is a prevalence of tech and AI in this year's edition. And um, that has been almost uh, a part and a feature of every single conversation we've had so far on Monocle Radio. And it somehow uh, permeates every single interview we've done too. And I think that shows you just how much WEF has changed over the years. Ten years ago, the houses would be dedicated mostly, if not exclusively, to nations. Geopolitics would be the key central theme across the agenda. And not saying those are not present there, but the fact that so much room has been given to other side, to the tech sector, just shows you as well where the money is going and when priorities for the year ahead are going to be. I mentioned elections there, and there is a danger of how AI might interfere with global elections. And those are conversations happening here on the ground to to ensure that democracy and tech can uh, work together rather than against each other. Carlos Rabello in Davos, thank you so much for joining us on the line. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Now, the UK is responsible for a third of the world's penguin population with more than six million square kilometres of ocean under its jurisdiction. And there are calls for the government to introduce greater protection for wildlife which live on and around the South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands in the South Atlantic Ocean. Well, Finn McCarran is from the Conservative Environment Network and conservation campaigner Adrian Gayen spoke to Monocle's Isabella Jewell a little earlier. And Isabella began by asking Finn to explain the Save Great British Penguins campaign. The UK government has a series of British overseas territories. So these are small islands, generally speaking, quite far from anywhere else. And we've created a bunch of marine protected areas around these. So we either don't have any fishing or we massively reduce the amount of fishing so that we can allow nature to thrive. And one of these little overseas territories is quite near Antarctica and it's called South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. And it currently has about a third of the world's penguins on it, which technically means a third of the world's penguins are British. And we want to extend the marine protected area around that so that we can protect our great British penguins. So Adrian, why exactly is it that the UK is responsible for a third of the world's penguin population? The UK has these overseas territories really as a result of the remnants of the British Empire. So there there are 16 of them dotted around the world, and they're, as it turns out, highly representative of the world's oceans because they're located in the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, the Mediterranean, the North Atlantic, the South Atlantic, the Caribbean, the Southern Ocean. So they're a wonderful sample of the world's ecology, both terrestrial and marine. To answer your question, the way international maritime law works uh, 200 miles off of the coast of a country is considered the territorial waters of that country and beyond the 200 miles are 
considered the uh, areas beyond national jurisdiction, also called the high seas. So given the fact that these overseas territories are considered part of the United Kingdom, even though they're located in different parts of the world, the 200 square miles offshore of each of these overseas territories is considered UK waters. And when you consider that many of them are an archipelago, a number of islands together, when you consider the square mileage around them, it adds up to a huge amount of ocean real estate. So the UK has more than 6 million square kilometers of ocean dotted around the world. And over 90% of the UK's marine estate is actually located around the world, not around Great Britain proper. Let's talk about the wildlife a little bit more now. What kind of creatures are we talking about in these marine areas and how exactly are they at risk? South Georgia actually has really an an infamous history in that it was one of the key whaling stations in the Southern Ocean. And vast numbers of whales were hunted from there over the past few centuries. As a result, they were reduced to something like 2% of their historic levels. So 98% of the natural numbers of whales had been hunted. The whaling ended not as a result of the moratorium, the global moratorium on whaling, but the whaling ended as a result of the fact that it no longer became commercially viable to hunt them. There were so few left. The whales have now returned to approximately 10% of their pre-hunting numbers, which is, of course, still a long way short of their natural numbers, but it's still an amazing, an amazing success story. These whales, like the penguins, live on krill. They're what, what's called baleen whales. So, you know, they don't have teeth, they don't eat fish. They eat krill, which are a type of zooplankton. They're the keystone of the, of, of the food chain down there. The more that the whales come back, the more krill that they will eat. And then that uh, has a wonderful cascading effect on the environment down there because it it effectively manages to fertilize the ocean with their whale poo and in turn has a virtuous cycle of creating more phytoplankton, more zooplankton and on and on we go. The area is still, three quarters of it is still open to potential fishing for krill and given the return of of the whales and the implications of, frightening implications of climate change for the penguin population, we would like to see more of the area closed to krill fishing as soon as possible. Penguins are unfortunately vulnerable to climate change impacts and the rate and pace of climate change in both of the poles is unfortunately quite frightening. And as a result, there has been very serious implications for the whole trophic chain, you know, the whole chain of wildlife and nature down there. And that includes uh, penguins, unfortunately, who will be suffering from a lack of sea ice and potential movements in their feeding and breeding patterns, which can have potentially very damaging impact on their numbers. And so, Finn, what can the government in Westminster realistically do about this? These are very far-flung problems, aren't they? They may be far-flung, but we still have a responsibility to protect these, given these are our British overseas territories. We had, as Adrian says, we've got about a quarter of this protected now, so it's about 23%. We extended that to 23% in 2018. Every Conservative government from the the last three Conservative governments have all been critical in extending this blue belt, and so we've added bits and pieces here and there. But one of the big review periods is the South Georgia South Sandwich Islands, which came up towards the end of last year, 
We've had a big scientific symposium about it now. We've seen the evidence for this, and we think that the government should extend this marine protected area to incorporate more of the South Sandwich Islands particularly, but more of the marine protected area around South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands. And Adrian, would you mind telling me who exactly is behind this overfishing in this marine area? In the Southern Ocean and around the Antarctic Peninsula, the primary extractors of krill are uh, Norway and China. And uh, Norway is a very large producer of farmed salmon. The krill from the Southern Ocean is extracted and frozen and then fed to salmon farms in in Europe, in South America, in Chile. When it goes to China, it also generally goes to animal feed. And Finn, so I wonder if you would characterise this also as a geopolitical issue. I mean, there are many tensions growing in other arenas between the West and China and Russia. Do you think that this is going to be more than just an environmental battle? We extended our marine protected area in 2018, And we were told at the time when Sen also campaigned on that in 2018, that we would be facing geopolitical tensions. We'd face a backlash, potentially. We might face geopolitical upset with regards to fishing quotas or krill quotas. And what actually happened was nothing. When we actually extended the marine protected area, we did so unilaterally. And all we have seen is the nature positive benefits that myself and Adrian have already outlined. Phil McCarran for the Conservative Environment Network and Conservation Campaigner Adrian Gayen speaking to Monocle's Isabella Jewell there. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally, a rapid roundup of music news with Will Hodgkinson, the Times rock and pop critic. Good morning, Will. Good morning, how are you? Well, baffled, frankly, because there is an enormously famous song that's doing the rounds. It's number one in England and no one seems to have heard about it. Okay, that track's called Stick Season, isn't it, Will? And it's number one. Um, how on earth has this happened? You know what? I'm, I'm struggling to find out myself. It came out two years ago. It's about, it sounds like the Mumford and Sons, you know, which is not exactly the sound of uh, 2024. Um, It's by a guy called Noah Khan from New England. And he wrote it during the COVID era about, basically about winter and feeling depressed. And, you know, stick season is just that. It's the period between autumn and sort of, you know, the depth of the winter. My only explanation is that we've had (laughs) some very shockingly cold weather recently and, and it seems to have just taken off it's really strange um so it's number one at the moment you have better trained ears than most is this song any good yes i think what it does is that it's uplifting while being melancholic and also it takes a very specific thing which is him going home you know he's he's doing thanksgiving and all the rest of it and it has this emotion which we all relate to which is that kind of bleakness you know very wintry so yes it works and but i mean musically it's it's the most straightforward thing imaginable um, so it's just very interesting. And the thing is, it's, it's not like anything, that, any trends in pop at the moment. You know, the trends in pop tend to be kind of commercial rap like Drake or, you know, very, very pure pop. So it's, 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 a, it's an anomaly. I suppose it, it's interesting because you, you're quite right. You, we haven't heard music like this actually making it to the mainstream for a little while. So does that say anything about appetites at the moment for, for different kinds of music? 
I think it probably does, and I think this t- this has taken the uh, the industry by surprise. Um, there's something which is you know which isn't being pushed in in uh, the major industry, which is kind of you know the sort of Paul Simon style, rather serious, rather rather earnest, folky pop music. Um, it's always been around. Um, so the fact that it's just it's yeah, it's battled through regardless. I mean, it is it is one of those strange things, though. I don't think we could uh, hit a trend on it so much, but it's uh, you know, it's 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 a phenomenon, really. It's one of those things that we, you know, if there are two more songs that get released like this that suddenly make it to number one, then then obviously we have a trend. But until then, well done, yeah. Noah Khan, for just striking on some clever something clever somewhere that no one quite understands. Exactly, which is what the best pop always does. <laughs> always does. Right. Um let's talk about Saltburn, um a film that I have got to the bathroom scene and then I've stopped. Um but that's not stopped the music that's been associated with the summer of two thousand and seven becoming enormously popular. It's been huge. I mean I think it's been widely covered that um Murder on the Dance Floor by Sophie Ellis Bexter, which which uh, documents the final scene, which I won't give away for people who haven't haven't seen the film. Um has has revitalized her career and it's been huge but i did an interview with mgmt the other day they're the american duo that people remember for kids time to pretend these are big songs in around 2006 2007 um and they said that they couldn't believe it they had absolutely no idea um a block party that was another band from um you know what we used to call it's a very rude term but landfill indie which is the sort of um you know, fairly standard issue indie music that was very popular in the in the early two thousands, and you know the, the interesting thing is that to me it doesn't seem that long ago, but there's obviously a great nostalgia for it. I mean, we're only talk, we're talking less than twenty years, and it's it's really taken off. And I think the film success has quite a lot to do with this. And increasingly, music is kind of shaping the narrative of films rather than just documenting them. And this is a prime example. There's a there's a lovely. I don't know if you follow the Amplifier, which is this email you get from the New York Times each week, which give you gives you a list of interesting stuff to listen to that you might not have heard of. You clearly don't need it, will, but but mere mortals like I do. And there's a great article where they go through what would they really be, lis- be listening to in 2007 and and the the writer uh, Lindsay Zolad said that actually an awful lot of the stuff that you hear on Saltburn isn't from that time it's a couple of years out or a couple of months out does that matter I don't think it really matters. The thing is, it catches some kind of spirit. And what what one of the reasons why I think Saltburn's been so popular is that it's it shows very posh people being hedonistic, um, which isn't particularly in keeping with you know the morals of the day. And but it's very liberating. Um, and MGMT in particular, you know, they really captured that. That song "Time to Pretend" was all about just pretending to be rock stars and indulging in hedonistic behaviour and you know being silly, really. And I think that's got something to do with it. So the music is maybe it's not entirely authentic, if that's the term. But the film isn't entirely authentic. I mean, it's got it's full of holes, but it's very entertaining. So in a way, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I think it captures the spirit of the times. I think it's full of more than holes, Will. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. That's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher is Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager is Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday in London. The Globalist's back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.